0: That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures.
1: I'm Muffet McGraw, and my dilemma is every night when it's time for bed, my husband hits the pillow and is asleep in seconds Meanwhile, I'm awake most of the night thinking about pretty much anything that happened to me that day. Well,
0: this one sounds very familiar because in my household, there's actually no need for a bed or a pillow. My husband can fall asleep literally anywhere at any time. I think in the 10 years we've been together, he's made it all the way through maybe five movies total, three in a theater and probably two at home on the couch. He will be talking and before he finishes his sentence, he will be snoring and asleep. It is. Actually quite impressive. It's a skill, I think. As for your problem, I used to have the spinning brain that you do where I, you know, trying to fall asleep and I couldn't stop planning and analyzing and worrying about what's on my schedule. So here are some fixes that might help that did help me. One, when I'm trying to fall asleep and my brain is kind of spinning, I'll force myself to think about a happy memory and think about it in great detail. Where was I, who was there, what happened, etc. Kind of takes my mind off whatever I'm stressing about and then hopefully slows it down enough to sort of fall asleep as you're thinking about something good. Maybe it'll also lead to nice, happy memories and dreams. Uh, if not, you can actually try a real true meditation, right? Find a phrase or a sentence that's calming and repeat it slowly over and over in your head while focusing on not letting any other thoughts creep into your head. That's always good. And if those don't work, occasionally, if I feel too wired right before bed, I'll take one melatonin pill. Now, some people say they need way more than that. I can usually take one and it works like a charm. All those things, you probably aren't going to still be able to conk out like your husband absolutely within an instant. But I actually think that's probably a good thing. because I think I get more work done by forcing myself to be able to stay awake when I get sleepy instead of immediately falling asleep like my husband does. So I would consider that part of your success. So uh, I think you're good. The Commission has spoken. Be sure to check out another great podcast in the Levitard and Friends podcast network, Marty Smith's America. This week, Marty discusses his new book, Never Settle, Sports, Family, and the American Soul, which includes a foreword written by country music superstar Eric Church. Download and subscribe to Marty Smith's America on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
2: That's what she said.
0: This week's guest is Muffet McGraw, head women's basketball coach at Notre Dame, where she has a 905 and 272 record over her 32 seasons there. Overall as a coach, 923 and 274. She's led her team to nine Final Fours, seven championship game appearances, two national championships in 2001 and 2018. She's in the Women's Basketball Hall of Fame and the Naismith Memorial Basketball Hall of Fame. And we had a great conversation. I mean, if you guys know anything about Muffet, you know she's incredibly impressive. Uh, but we talked about that nickname, Muffet, and where it came from. What it's like being a coach in the same place for over 30 years, the good and the bad in that. How she played pro ball in the 70s and how women's sports have kind of changed over the years how she's still trying to avoid losing game days to stress, how she can balance her preparation with feeling so anxious that she feels like she's giving time away, Uh, her relationship with Gino Oriama and a whole bunch of other stuff. So it's a great conversation. Uh, We also get into that viral rant that earned her a bunch of praise from the likes of uh, Obama and Serena Williams and others. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Muffet McGraw.
2: That's what she said.
0: So excited to have Muffet McGraw on the podcast. And as I was prepping for this and doing the research – I just came up with so much to talk about with you, so, uh, let's get into it. There's so much to get to. I want to start way back. You're one of seven kids growing up in Pennsylvania. Uh, I, I always try to picture very, um, kind of hard ass leaders and, and, you know, bosses as children, and it's very difficult for me. So try to describe what you were like as a kid.
1: Well, I was pretty bossy even then. I think I played point guard, so I, you know I kind of grew up with the ball in my hand, directing traffic and telling people where to go. Uh, I was the middle child, and so I think there's there's some thought that the middle child um, has some issues. But I I looked at it as a leadership position, and definitely was the one picking teams and uh, deciding what everybody was going to do for the day.
0: Mostly girls or boys in that seven.
1: We actually started with four and four. Um and my oldest brother died when I was a sophomore in high school. So I I then, that's why I'm probably not really the middle child.
0: What um what did he pass away from?
1: He had a uh, kidney disease.
0: Oh wow. Did that affect you and your family a lot growing up?
1: Yeah, you know, I I think I think it did. I think back then it was um certainly a lot different than it is now I mean when you have eight kids nobody's special right we all had to kind of fight for what we got and uh even around the the dinner table everybody had jobs that were assigned and you um you know you you did a lot of chores we uh it was tough to get the car you know that was that was difficult we only had one car um but you know you uh you just go along and make it work
0: what did your parents do for work
1: uh, my dad was in insurance. My mom stayed home for most of the time and then went back to work um, after all the kids were in school. She worked for my dad at the insurance company, actually, as a secretary.
0: Oh, wow. Um, so your real name is Anne. When did you start going by Muffet? Uh,
1: pretty much right after I was born. Um, my mom's name was Anne, and so my uncle decided he didn't want to have two Anns in the family and. Uh, yeah, I'm still thinking of a new story for that, but that's that's pretty much the way it started out with a nursery rhyme,
0: like Little Miss Muffet. That's yeah. that's it. That's the one mm-hmm. we go to, and that's the that's the answer. It's that simple. Unfortunately, <laughs> do you like the name? It makes you stand out.
1: You know, it, it's difficult when you're calling for a hotel reservation and trying to to say it. <laughs> and uh, I yeah, I, I would have liked to maybe have something a little a little plainer. But yeah, it definitely they could have just gone with Annie. Out.
0: That would have been fine. Annie is good.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, that would have been perfect.
0: <laughs> uh, I have to say, Spain, like the country, about a hundred times a day. Every time I call for anything, so I can imagine that spelling out Muffet is. Uh,
2: yeah.
0: <laughs> um. So into sports at a young age, always.
1: Uh, seventh grade, the priest came into St. Agnes Grade School and said, we're going to start a girls basketball team. Who wants to play? And my hand shot up. That was uh-huh. the first time uh, they had started. Kids now, you know, they're playing when they're third grade or whatever AAU starts at. But seventh grade it was, and we were playing six on six, wearing skirts, jumpers uh, with bloomers. And uh boy, that was really back in the pioneer days. And who would have thought the Catholic Church would have been way ahead of the curve for uh Title Nine? Because this was right before Title Nine actually came in. So I was I was ahead of the curve.
0: Yeah, you know, I remember talking to Sister Jean who became famous during that Loyola Final Four run, uh, the nun from Loyola who mm-hmm, yeah. who interacts with that men's team And back back in her day when she was playing, it was, you know, half court and only certain people were allowed to shoot or go past a certain line. I mean, it was different rules and everything. I presume you were playing standard basketball rules by then?
1: Yeah, well, and once I got to ninth grade, it was all five on five, just like the guys. But it was yeah, definitely, I mean, in Iowa, they were playing six on six in the 90s. So that what? that was something no. that, uh, you know, some people couldn't cross half court, they played a little different version of the game. And fortunately, we've all come to, uh, to join the men and play the five on five game.
0: Wow, that's crazy. Uh, did you play other sports or just hoops?
1: Yeah, I played softball. That was pretty much the only option back then. It was basketball and softball, two sports for girls. That was all we could handle. And uh, (laughs) I think they might have had tennis uh, and a couple of others when I got to college, but those uh, those were the two.
0: So you played at Saint Joseph's University. What were your playing days like? Um, What was college basketball for women like then?
1: Well, it was very different. That was the first year. It was a varsity sport, so I I came in really on the ground floor, and we had. a very local schedule in Philly. We played a lot. we played Bryn Mawr. Remember, we played Bryn Mawr, and it was a pretty much a nursing school. And they said, we'll we'll only play you if you don't play your starters." And somehow that was agreed upon. So the five starters sat on the bench and watched the game unfold. Uh, we played a lot of, um, of course, the Big Five back then with all the Big Five teams. And then Immaculata was a powerhouse back then, so we got to play them. But we had maybe an 18 or 20-game schedule, hardly traveled, uh, really really didn't even get on a plane, I don't think, until my senior year uh, when we went to the AIAW National Tournament. And that was uh, that was very different. We didn't have practice clothes. We didn't have a sneaker deal. We did our own laundry. We, we drove ourselves to half of the games uh, because they were all local. We didn't have any, but there was no per diem. We didn't even know what that meant. Uh, we never mm-hmm. stayed overnight. And if we did, if we had to, it was four to a room. Um, kind of waited till the guys got done practicing, and they practiced as long as they wanted. And we just sat there and calmly waited for them to get off the court. And then we took the court. There was no scholarships. Um, it was very, very different. It was definitely... Absolutely. Uh, the pioneered age.
0: So, you know, obviously we're going to get into your activism and your thoughts on equality and opportunity. But way back then, was there any part of you that looked around and thought this isn't fair or was it so ingrained and was society so clearly putting tears for boys and girls back then that it didn't really occur to you to be mad or, or frustrated that you had less?
1: You know, I, I I think it didn't even occur to us at that point that we didn't have what the men had. I think we saw the inequity, but we were so happy to be playing. Uh, we were right. only playing because we loved the game of basketball. We we you know we weren't getting paid to go to school, so we we just loved it. And we thought this I guess this is what you have to put up with. And then eventually. I think it was more when I got into coaching than you started to see the inequities. But back back in the early 70s, um, I, I think that was the way society looked at it when we didn't get any attention, which is actually not that much different than it is now. Um, but we certainly uh, weren't getting games on TV and getting big stories in the paper back then.
0: Yeah, it's kind of fascinating that it's now uh, 2019, and Abby Wambach's main point of her book and speeches is that we need to stop just being happy that we have the opportunity to play, and it's something that was late 60s, early 70s was the same thing. Uh, sometimes it feels like we've gotten so far, and then uh, occasionally we're reminded that we're fighting a lot of the same battles, which is unfortunate.
1: Yeah, I think um, we're constantly reminded of fighting those battles. Yeah, um, and it's it's frustrating and it's uh, interesting i mean i think we're about four percent of media attention so i think we've got a long way to go and i think the women's soccer team and what they're doing has been great for all women's sports
0: i agree with that for sure uh i'm curious as someone who went on to coach what was your relationship with coaches when you were a player maybe at high school and collegiate level
1: I had really good relationships with my coaches. I played for three different coaches in college, and so that was that was an interesting um, thing. but you know there was there was never any thought of oh gosh we 're getting a new coach. I guess I might leave this team you know you you went there because you wanted to be at that school and play with the the girls that you were surrounded by so playing for three different coaches, I think it taught you a lot how every year you know you had to kind of prove yourself all over again so you could never get complacent and I think that was uh, probably a good lesson to learn. I I think we we had to overcome a few bumps in the road along the way, and uh, had a, a great experience.
0: So then you briefly played professionally for the California Dreams of the Women's Professional Basketball League. I have not heard of this team. Uh, that's that was just a, a show that came on after Saved by the Bell when I was growing up. California <laughs> Dreams. Uh, what what? Tell me about that league and that team.
1: Well, obviously, you didn't see my husband wearing the My Wife is a Dream t-shirt, oh, because that was that was really, great. that was something, that was a phenomenal experience, and again, here we are playing professionally, and just so happy to be there, signed my contract for $11,000, and was thrilled to death that I was getting paid to play. Um, we went to California, and it was, you know, we played in these big arenas where there was very few people, you could count them all during the National Anthem. And probably recognized most of them at the same time. (laughs) Um, We traveled around the country. It was it was very um, it was very big. It was probably too big for when we started, and we didn't quite get the. In terms of the number of teams, three games left, and we folded.
0: It was too big in terms of the number of teams.
1: Well, you know, I was in California. You know, we're going east to New York. I mean, it was just it was a very expensive venture. I think for what we had.
0: Got it. And um, then we didn't long... get
1: paid, which was not a great thing. So my husband oh. used to wait outside practice with the car running. And we'd run out after practice and see if we'd be the first one to the bank. Because, you know, oh there's no gosh. direct deposit back then. <laughs> and maybe the first three or four checks would cash. And we'd be the lucky ones.
0: Oh, wow. So that wasn't just that was even a full season then?
1: No, we uh, just almost made it. We, we folded just about three games to the finish.
0: Well, you beat the... Uh... The recent football league that I've already forgotten the name of, so got that, well, that was just our
1: team. the <laughs> The league went two years,
0: so oh, wow, that was okay.
1: that was encouraging.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so you were already married by the time you were playing there. Uh, did you get married during college?
1: No, right after college, October of um, after I graduated.
0: Excellent. Okay.
1: All right. My husband had no idea what he was getting into. Right. I I can only. Yeah. I got a high school coaching job right after that, and uh, that was it. Been been coaching the rest of my life, and Matt just uh, rolls with the punches. Uh,
0: He obviously knew you were extremely athletic and extremely into sports. Uh, Maybe not the extent to which it would define your lives. (laughs) Um, So, did you always want to be a coach? Was that something that you dreamed of when you were playing?
1: No, I didn't. I, you know, I, I just, I loved the game and I wanted to stay in it. I didn't know what else to do. And so when the high school job opened, I thought, you know, I'll just try it and see, see how it goes. And I think from my first practice, I was like, this is it. This is going to be my life's work. Huh.
0: Um. So yeah, you started Archbishop Carroll High School. You coached there for two years. Uh, what was it like coaching at the high school level? And did you always think, I want to, were you ambitious about, I want to get to the next level at all times?
1: I I was ambitious. I I definitely wanted to move up to the college level and I was. Fortunate to be able to do that early, but coaching high school girls was really i, I love the experience I mean it was all about the the team and the you know the excitement and the energy and how they would be uh, you know just ready for every game. I thought they were just so coachable they all wanted to learn they wanted to be good. Uh, I was fortunate that I walked into a really good situation and had some really good players that a lot of them ended up playing Division one, um, but it was it was just a great experience uh, i think probably a lot different than it is today but Um, back then really enjoyed it.
0: And then, uh, St. Joseph's back where you played and then Lehigh, which is uh, my sister's alma mater. Uh, so that's another 10 years or so, or, or a little bit under a decade spent at the collegiate level as an assistant and then a head coach. Um, those early gigs at the collegiate level, how different was basketball back then for women, um, at that level and how different did it feel even for you from, from when you had played?
1: Well, it wasn't much different from when I played. I, really? We, okay. When I was at Lehigh, I think I swept the floor before the game. And back then, <laughs> the 30-second the clocks were put out the... on the floor. Yeah. <laughs> so I was setting up the 30-second clocks. I had to pay the referees, which was very difficult, especially after a loss. And we, you know, basically, we, you know my husband ran the halftime show. Sometimes he had to keep the book if somebody didn't show up. Um, it, was, it was not – there was no support staff. You know, we, we pretty much did everything ourselves. My staff consisted of three graduate assistants who had class almost every night. So we we never really had a full roster of coaches out there. Um, and we, you know, we didn't travel. We didn't we didn't spend the night too many places either. We did a lot of travel by bus. I don't think we ever flew anywhere. Um, it was uh, it was pretty, pretty small, but it was so much fun. I mean, I learned so much and I enjoyed it so much. And I probably would have stayed there for forever if my husband hadn't talked me into applying for my current job.
0: What was your husband doing for work when you were at Lehigh for that uh, uh, five years?
1: He worked for uh, Bank of America in sales. He had the uh, he had a couple of different regions. He was in the northeast for a while, and then he uh, had the south for a while, and he would just travel, um, you know, a little bit during the week.
0: And he was always open to wherever your coaching might take you. He would be willing to, to look for a job there.
1: He was he was an unusual man I think. He was mm-hmm. uh he was always willing to make some sacrifices and adjust to what my schedule was and then when we came out here he uh you know he had to quit his job and come out here and I think a lot of people thought that was a little unusual but for him he was just supporting his wife.
0: Yeah. It's becoming less and less unusual which is good uh for yeah. for everybody I think. Um uh, so you get to Notre Dame at uh, at age 32 back in 1987. Uh, Tell me about – you mentioned that he sort of pushed you to apply. Was there a part of you that thought, I'm not ready for that, or, or why was there a nudge
1: required? You know, I think women all have the same problem, right? We look at where we are. We're we're very loyal. Um, you know, I was happy where I was. I liked the people that gave me my first job. I felt like I owed them something. I thought, what if I apply and I don't get it? Are they going to think I want to leave or, or, you know, are they going to be unhappy with me? I think all the things that women kind of think about that men uh, don't give as much um, thought to. So coming out here, and then, then there was just the confidence of, you know, am I ready for this? This is pretty big. Am I ready for this? Um, you know, can I handle it? And it was uh, certainly a very different time back then, and they were really just getting started, too, coming off a losing season, so it was a, a good time to come out.
0: What was Notre Dame like in 1987? Was the school, the atmosphere, the expectations for you and other employees, was it very similar, have you noticed a, a great change since you arrived?
1: Well, I, th- I think that certainly women's sports have grown tremendously since I've been here. And football has always been big. Um, you know, we had national champions in 88, you know, right after I got here, Lou Holtz was here. It was a phenomenal time to be at Notre Dame. Digger Phelps was coaching the men's basketball team. Uh, and they were still independent back then. So it was, it was very different. We, we joined a conference. We were in the North Star Conference and the MCC before finally getting into the big east. But we've grown tremendously. I mean when I first came it was not it was not the perfect setup for uh women out here in terms of you know, the success of the program, there was there was no success. There was not um, any tournament history, no tradition. Uh, but I liked the tradition of the school, and I love that it was a place where people were committed to excellence and people expected excellence, and yet you had to be a good student and you had to be a, a, a pretty good person, and I think the integrity of the school and, and what they stand for was really important to me. What's the
0: best part of being in one place for so long? You've now been there for 32 years, right?
1: You, you started with my age, and now you're throwing it out again. Uh, I think well, no, that, I mean, uh, it's
0: been 32 years, right? And you started <laughs> at age 32. So if people want to do the math, they can. It's not necessary. No math required on this podcast. Let's just oh, say God, more than I, 30
1: I, that's, that's an easy uh, one, though.
0: Yeah, you've I, been in the same place for more than 30 years. So uh, yeah. what's what's the best part I, about staying in one I spot? Mean,
1: I, I think being a part of the community, I think that's the best part, being um, being able to be active in the community, be involved in the community. And, you know, we've lived here longer than we've lived anywhere else. So we really feel like we're Midwesterners now. And being associated with Notre Dame, I think, is it's an honor and a blessing to me that I've been able to be here for this long. But just to represent Notre Dame across the country, wherever we go, um, to see how people are... So um, appreciative, I think, of, of what we've done for the program and certainly how we've represented it.
0: What's the worst part of being in the same place for that long?
1: Um, you know, I, I don't really see a downside to it. I, I think it's, it's an unbelievable place. There isn't anywhere else I've ever even been tempted to look at. Uh, I, think, I think being in one place, you have the stability of the program. Um, I think it's all good. I don't see any downside.
0: We'll wait till you eventually retire or leave and then we'll get back to that question and see if there's anything anything you'd say. Um, you did an interview with the SPNW last year and you said, when I think about how many game days I've had, that's 1100 days of my life that I've spent in a cocoon of stress. I could have been, I don't know, living. So that could be flippant, right? That could be said with a twinkle in your eye that you love yeah. it, but it takes some, some of your life. Or maybe it reveals a deeper feeling that you have about the job you've chosen and, and maybe feeling the loss of those days sometimes. Which one is it or is it both?
1: Well, you know, I think one of the things I always wished that I could do more was enjoy the journey. And that that's always been hard for me because I always think of worst-case scenario. What's the worst outcome that could what could happen in this game that I'm not prepared for or I haven't prepared the team for. So I spend most of game day kind of going through those um, catastrophe situations that could occur. And uh, I wish that I could just enjoy it more as we're going through it. And especially looking back and going like, wow, that was a really, that was a great year and wishing that I could have enjoyed it a little bit more and and taken more time to, uh, you know, I I don't do anything on game day. I don't talk to people. Um, If we're at a, especially when we're on the road, you know, I don't really go out much. So, you know, I probably could have enjoyed it a little more.
0: Yeah, I heard there's a lot of pregame solitaire and puzzles. It used to be movies. Uh, It used to be, like back in the day, something else. So there's always some sort of thing to take your mind off straight basketball all day. But still, there's no socializing or relaxing, right? It's something that you're taxing your brain with.
1: Yeah, for sure. Uh, I know I try to get online and find those games that are supposed to be stress relievers and making you calm. And <laughs> I remember Brianna Turner walking by me on the bus saying, you know, it's not working. <laughs> so did <find> another game. <laughs> uh,
0: one of my good friends from high school was a two-time Olympian in the pole vault, and she would sit and read like Glamour or Mary Claire or something while everybody else was jumping until they would tell her it was her turn. And I always thought, how can you not, you know, be watching and paying attention? She always said it was easier just to shut it off until it was time to go. Um, I, I see that being a strategy for you, but have you ever tried the opposite? Have you ever said, we're in this beautiful place. Let me go have a cheesesteak in Philly. <laughs> or, I heard about this great thing that I'm supposed to do in this city. Let's go do that for the day.
1: Yeah, I, I'm i trying. I'm I'm trying. I, I think I'm getting a little bit better, but <laughs> there is not, no try. I'm still not at the point. Yeah. There's only I two. Mean, <laughs> even in the summer, we go to AAU tournaments. We're, we're doing all this traveling, and we never see the good spots. We're only seeing the inside of the gym.
0: Does we mean your husband as well?
1: Yeah. When he's, I mean, I, we, last year at the final four, we we're like, we, we're going to enjoy this one. And so every time I would get that face on, he would say, we're enjoying it. Right. Um, <laughs> that uh, That's kind of what led to my dance of joy after the Connecticut. Yeah. One.
0: The jig, the leprechaun jig. Um, does he ever get to push you enough to say, Oh, you know, we're, we're on this AAU trip. I really want to go see this or do this. And you relent. Or is it, is it truly hard for you to let your guard down and relax a little in the midst of what you consider work?
1: You know, I, he doesn't go to the AAU stuff, but when, when we do travel for Notre Dame events or for ACC events, uh, I think we've gotten much better at, at saying, you know, I have to go to New York to do this thing. Hey, why don't we go out and spend a few days? And we're like, wow, what a great <laughs> idea. So, we, uh, yeah, we've just recently started doing that.
0: Have you talked to other coaches about how they handle it?
1: I, I often ask coaches what they do on game day and it's a variety of answers. I mean, some people, um, you know, like to read or watch TV or they have stuff they, they like to do and, um, you know, everybody's different. Some people handle it probably a little bit better, but I, I asked a, an old men's coach one time, what, like, I'm such a wreck before the game. Why, when do you start to relax? And he goes, well, when you do, you need to retire because you oh. need to have <laughs> that edge. So I I thought, well, I definitely still have that.
0: Yeah, for sure. I imagine the reverse feels great, although I know that there are some coaches who really hate to lose, and the winning is quick, and the winning lasts so short before they're ready to move on to what the next challenge is. So can you say that the reverse feels as great as whatever the dread is about what, what, what might happen and could go wrong?
1: You know, I think I think when you're expected to win, that's the problem. You, you, you yeah. win and you're relieved instead of excited. And that, that was the problem with last year being number one for most of the year or the expectation of, of being number one. Um, so I think this year is going to be a great challenge for us, losing five starters and now looking at this as we're the underdogs again. It's going to be fun, isn't it? It's gonna be, we're going to enjoy the journey. Everything that happens is going to be just great. Um, we're going to really appreciate all those little things that in the past we've kind of let slip by. So hopefully this will be another year I get to really enjoy it. Back with more That's What She
0: Said with Sarah Spain in just a minute. Credit card bills. Every month you get them with multiple payments and multiple due dates. Wouldn't it be easier to just have one payment at a lower rate? Well, you can with a credit card consolidation loan from my friends at Lightstream. Get a rate as low as 5.95% APR with auto pay, lower than the average credit card interest rate of over 19% APR. Plus, the rate is fixed, so it'll never go up over the life of the loan. Lightstream believes that people with good credit deserve a better loan experience, and that's exactly what they deliver. Just for my listeners, apply now to get a special interest rate discount. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash Spain, H T. L-I-G-H-T, S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash S-P-A-I-N. Subject to credit approval, rate includes 0.5% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash Spain for more information. That's what she said. When you look back at your time at Notre Dame, are you able to sort of parse which kinds of teams you get the most enjoyment out of or is it so specific to the the personalities in that journey is it oh this one is more work and i tend to like a little bit more work than being a front runner
1: yeah i th- i think the challenges are are really different i i know you know back in 2001 we we had just a great group and we we've had a lot of really good really good players and just really great people. And there was a team, a couple of teams that, you know, we didn't get to the final four, but I just really enjoyed being around them. And, I think 2011 was our our first Final Four in, in uh, like since the 2001 championship, and that was I love that team. That was still one of my favorite Final Fours and favorite teams. And we didn't win it, but just to uh, you know, we beat Connecticut and Tennessee, and that never been done before in a NCAA tournament. So we, you know, it was just everything was. We were excited when the police gave us an escort on the bus. I mean, we were filming everything. <laughs> we were um, filming ourselves. Filming things, um, just had a a great time. And that's, you know, I I think Skylar Diggins came in and and she kind of changed the culture of our team. And she she made me work a little bit harder, I think, um, because she was such a good student of the game. And she was always um, talking about things we could do. What about this? I watched this game last night. What do you think about this? And I love that. I love the challenge of uh, being ready every day.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask, you know, you've coached so many different kinds of players. And everybody obviously is, is unique, but is there a kind of player you like the most? I know I was a pain in the ass for coaches because I had almost a, a perfect memory of exactly what they said. So if two weeks later they said something different, I would say, well, two weeks ago you said this, so which one do you want? And my family's all lawyers. So I would, you know, argue to death about what they did or didn't want and say, and well, that's not what you said before. Um, I was not a, a coach's favorite usually, except for the fact that I was always going to work really hard and be smart about the game. Uh, What do you like? Do you like that point guard who just runs what you say? Do you like the ones who ask you questions?
1: Well, we did not offer you a scholarship, so I I think that that (laughs) part goes without saying. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) That would definitely not have been my favorite. Um, I I do. I I love the competitive ones. I love that. Um, You know, we've had so many that are competitive and feisty, and I understand it. If somebody came in the locker room and threw their water bottle. Cross the room because they were mad about the way things went the first half. I want to applaud that. I mean, I, I appreciate that because that's how I am. I'm super competitive. I don't like the people who don't let you know how they're feeling, um, you know, they, or they sulk. Um, that that really drives me crazy. I, I don't want people to, uh, to have to, you know, have a lot of drama or, you know, have to be a lot of, pay a lot of attention to them. I think it's, you know, it's a team game and I want people who want to win as much as I do.
0: Let's talk about uh, 2018, and uh, I want you to take me through what you're feeling and thinking in the moment as Enrique Agunbawale twice does magic uh, and, okay. and how how insane it was both times uh, in the semifinal against Connecticut and then in the final against Mississippi State. Maybe start with Connecticut and um, in that moment what you're thinking
1: well, it was crazy just to get there, right? We have we're playing six people. They're playing thirty-eight minutes a game, and you know if if somebody turns an ankle, the season's over. So we 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 get out to uh, to the West Coast and we win the regional by beating Oregon, and now we're like, oh my god, like who would have thought we we're going to get to the Final Four? So we have no pressure. I mean, we're just we're just there. We're we're not happy to be there. We're thinking, you know, we're gonna we're gonna play hard and and we're gonna see what happens. And playing Connecticut in the semifinal is always good for us because we've only. Ever, we always beat them in the semifinal. We've never, we've never beaten them in the final, only the semifinal. So we think the gods are with us. So we get into the game, and we're playing pretty well, and things are going well. and We're up five with, I think, 22 seconds left in the game. And so for anybody listening to this, you know, you're supposed to win that game. I mean, you're up, you're up with <laughs> 22 seconds left. So he calls timeout. They come over to the sideline, and I say, okay, two things. Very simple. Do not give up a three, and don't call timeout if it goes in. (laughs) So we go out, we immediately give up the three and everybody calls timeout. So we we come (laughs) over to the bench and I'm like, hey, you know, we're okay. We're okay. We don't have any timeouts left, so we better be able to get the ball in uh, right now. And we're still up two with the ball. um, You know, I don't know how much time's left. We turn it over. They go down, they make a layup and they tie the game. And so we come down, we have a chance to win it. We turn it over. We come back down. They get a last shot that that falls off. So now we're going into overtime. And I think the biggest challenge for me was, you know, don't strangle anybody. Don't <laughs> don't tell them what you really think. How did we lose that lead? How did we, you know, how did we get here? Just move on. So at that moment, I looked at Arike in the huddle and I said to myself, she's going she's gonna to be the one with the ball in her hands at the end of this game, no matter what happens. Because I could tell she was mad. She didn't have an opportunity to have the ball, um, you know, in in any of those last second plays. So that was the plan right then that she was going to get the ball and certainly came down to it. And we get the ball out of bounds. We're going to play for the last shot. So we're holding the ball as long as we can. I think we had about 20 seconds to hold the ball. We're going to set a ball screen for Enrique to come off. And uh, when that shot went in, I mean, it was, it was a great shot. It was amazing. Um, She had a really good look at it. They switched on the pick and she made the shot and uh, just incredible joy. I mean, just that moment uh, to see your team celebrate um, and the smiles and the, and the joy and, and uh, just the ecstasy of the moment, I think was, was one of the best memories ever. Um, You know, it's, It's a it's a fun moment uh, that you'll always treasure and, you know, celebrate in the locker room and go crazy, because now, I mean, that should have been the final. That's what we're thinking. Right. God, could there have been a better game and two overtime games in that final four? And And that's what we all said. We we hope we
0: we hope we get a final that can be better. How could it be better than this? You know, that was that was the best. Right.
1: Yes. So, I mean, you know, when you beat a team like Connecticut, who's, you know, they're number one, everybody expected them to win. You know, it's a huge upset. And so you, you're just your adrenaline and everything. And it was late because the first game was overtime. Our game was overtime. I mean, it's it's like 1230, I think, by the time we get into uh, ready to, to go to the press conference. So it was a long night and, you know, came back against Mississippi State, got down, scored three points in the second quarter, which was a record. I don't think anybody's ever been that bad in an NCAA (laughs) tournament game. And, you know, down 15 or 16, Come out in the second half, and all of a sudden, here we come. Everything we did wrong in the first half. Suddenly, the shots are falling. We're getting some stops. You know, come down right to the wire. Uh, They throw it inside. We're going to double team uh, McAllen. Six seven. You know, she's she's killing us the whole game. And fortunately, she misses the shot. We come up with the rebound, and we get uh, we get a a look at it with 3.4 seconds left. Uh, Call of play to go inside because now McAllen is fouled out and think we're gonna score on the block, and Enrique was the backup plan she was plan B to come off the screen they uh they double teamed uh our post player so Enrique was able to come off the screen and that shot was amazing. I mean, I felt like it took five minutes to leave her <laughs> hand and get through the rim uh just waiting and watching that uh is just such an incredible moment for everyone and to see that go through. I'd never get tired of watching that film again.
0: Well, and so Enrique is is showered with all the deserved love and becomes more of a household name because of that. And so you have uh, the agony and then the defeat because the next year she misses one of two free throws against Baylor and you lose by one point how How hard is it for you because you're not just a coach, you end up being a parent and a therapist and and everything else to 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 help someone through that low moment. Um, when she so admirably stepped up under pressure the year before.
1: You know it was heartbreaking, and my my biggest regret is when the buzzer sounded i didn 't go to her in mm. instead going down and uh, shaking hands with the with the coaches because that was a moment I felt like um you know we needed to rally around her so when we got to the locker room, the uh, first thing I said was the game is not won in the last second like that. The game was forty minutes we we did so many things during that forty minutes we missed other shots, we turned it over we didn't get rebounds, we didn't get stops there were so many things we did to contribute to that so it, it definitely was not one person. Um, and fortunately for us, Enrique is such a great uh, – her mental game, I mean, her mental toughness and her ability to let things go – is is as good as anybody i've ever seen in fact i think she's kind of a role model for me of just let it go you know just put it behind you um she did so many great things for us so to be able to get by that moment um i think she was probably the one person on our team i think was capable of getting over that
0: she's one of um many of your players in the wnba uh talk about what it's like to then see them get to play at the next level and in such a different way than you did when you had your stint with the dreams
1: well, it's it's awesome to watch them, and it's keeping me really busy because there's so many, <laughs> so many. Now we've got nine in the league, and it seems like somebody's always on. So I always get to catch a game. But seeing them in person is, you know, I feel more like their mom. I think I'm kind of a fan than I'm their mom, and I'm, um, you know, wondering like every every play. Uh, you know, I'm just looking at hoping that they play well and just knowing they made the team. I think Marina was the last one um, to call in and say I made it, and you know, just see the of that moment of knowing everything they worked for everything we did you know we had we had an impact on their careers and on what they were able to do in the future that to reach their dreams and achieve their potential it's such a great feeling as a coach to have that reward um, to look at that and see their face and uh, just to understand um, how hard they worked and what, what they did to get there so it's it's been a blast watching them all and they're all doing well Rick, Enrique's should be Rookie of the Year. I think she's having a phenomenal year. Jackie Young is starting for her team. Uh, Marina and Bree are playing. Jessica, unfortunately, had a ACL injury early, but she had 13 rebounds in her first game. So yeah. you know they're all going to be successful.
0: So what happens if they're playing against each other? Are you getting texts uh, asking
1: you know <laughs> who you're rooting for, whose side are you on? Well, it's funny because I, I go to a lot of the Fever games where Natalie Chamo is, is playing on, on the Fever. And then when the other girls come into town, I go, I don't cheer for teams. I cheer for individuals. <laughs> I'm going to sit right here and clap only when my girls do something good. Um, so it makes it a little bit easier.
0: Yeah, you are like the parents, except for you have many, many kids. Instead of just yeah, the two where you have the split jersey, you have too many for that. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of stories about your competitiveness. Uh, including the one I, I I briefly mentioned earlier in your husband playing golf. He hits a hole-in-one instead of being excited for him. You do the quick math and realize that you then would have to hit a hole-in-one to beat him, and you're angry. <laughs> you, I'm ready to go home, right? So I think competitiveness, being extremely competitive myself, is a reason that I'm great at what I do and has, have found success. I think it's hard sometimes, though, to balance the qualities that make you great at your job but maybe aren't always great to be around. (laughs) So how do you find ways to sort of uh, make sure that you're using that to the best when it's necessary and tempering it if possible at all when it's not?
1: And that's difficult. And it's difficult for women because people don't expect us to be competitive. You know, yeah. they expect us to be very compassionate and nice. And, um, you know, I've, I've not won a lot of sportsmanship awards, I have to say. <laughs> I definitely <laughs> am one that has always been driven. I've always been competitive. And I think it's a great thing for women. I, I think that we, we need to be able to be allowed to be competitive uh, because um, competing in sports is just giving you so much for the future, so many life skills that we 're teaching, uh, but it is it is hard, and I do need to learn um, you know early in my career, it took me a long time to get over losing it took me a long time to understand that you know people are going to make mistakes and you got to fix them and you can't worry about what happened and that was that was really hard to learn uh, i think it it's taken me years to be able to just look at a defeat and go oh here's what happened here's how we fix it let's move on um but really in anything i mean i'm competitive in pretty much absolutely everything uh, if my husband drives up here um to campus and we're going home in separate cars like i want to beat him you know i'm going to try to find the fastest way so yeah he's he's the one he's laid back and easygoing and I'm uh, yes, I'm on the edge.
0: Do you have any other great stories where your competitiveness uh, became the stuff of legend? Stuff you guys didn't talk about?
1: <laughs> I, you know, people, people. I like to play games. We we play a lot of games, um, and people always say like, well, I mean, you know, you're going to play till she wins because she makes the rules as you go along. <laughs> so it was either one game or now it's the best of three, or yeah. that was a practice round. Um, so I think uh, I think I do have that legendary status of. Yeah, very Michael winner. Jordan
0: of you. I think that's how yeah. he operates as well. Um, there was an interview that you did last year with Lindsey Gibbs of Think Progress, in which you said you were not going to hire male assistant coaches, and um, that in itself drew interest. But it led to a question in a press conference, and that went viral. Last I checked, it was you know over seven million views. I'm going to play a little bit of it right here.
2: I'm getting tired of the novelty of the first female governor of this state. The first female African American mayor of this city. When is it going to become the norm instead of the exception? How are these young women looking up and seeing someone that looks like them preparing them for the future? We don't have enough female role models. We don't have enough visible women leaders. We don't have enough women in power. Girls are socialized to know when they come out, gender roles are already set. Men run the world, men have the power. Men make the decisions. It's always the men that is the stronger one. And when these girls are coming out, who are they looking up to to tell them that that's not the way it has to be? And where better to do that than in sports? All these millions of girls that play sports across the country, they could come out every day. And we're teaching them great things about life skills. But wouldn't it be great if we could teach them to watch how women lead? This is a path for you to take to get to the point where, in this country, we have 50% of women in power. Right now, less than 5% of women are CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. So, yes, when you look at men's basketball and 99% of the jobs go to men, why shouldn't 100 or 99% of the jobs in women's basketball go to women? Maybe it's because we only have 10% women athletic directors in Division I. People hire women. People who look like them, and that 's the problem
0: was that something you knew when you went into that press conference that if you got any question that gave you that opening, you wanted to talk about, or was it completely extemporaneous
1: you know it was i didn't know I was going to get the question I, I had had the question um, a couple of weeks before that, and you know when you ask somebody a question in sort of a vacuum like i 'm not hiring anybody right now, I like my staff i like I like having uh this all-female staff for the first time, and uh, it's working out pretty well. But <laughs> it, it unfortunately, I think people missed the point, and the point was: women need more opportunities. We need more women leading. We need more women as role models across the country, across not just basketball. I'm talking CEOs. I'm talking the Senate and uh, the House, and and. and in every corporation across the country, you know, five percent of female CEOs in Fortune 500 companies. We we just need more women. I think Times Up was a great movement. Uh, I think it started people thinking, and I think that now you're looking at women joining the NBA. I, I think that Adam Silver's making a push for women to be hired in the NBA, and a lot of teams are looking at that now. And that's all I wanted to do was say it. It doesn't have to be. Um, you know, all men are all women. Uh, we we need to work together. We need to use men. We need to learn from them. And what better way to do that than in the NBA? But I, I think that there's just so many places where women could be hired. And we just want opportunity. We need opportunity. And I think in every walk of life, um, people keep telling me, like, I'm in a male-dominated business. And I, and I say, well, pretty much everyone is, because that's <laughs> just the way it's been. And we need to change that.
0: So in the moment, I'm sure you can feel that you're on a roll. You can feel that, you know, what you're saying is clicking. You got all your stats ready to go. You know, you're firing in all cylinders. But I'm sure it was still a surprise to you that it goes viral, that you get a tweet from President Obama and Serena Williams is texting you. Hillary Clinton is sending you a letter about it. It's, It's a massive buzz. How surprised were you that it really had that kind of effect?
1: Well, I was shocked, um, because while I was talking, I could feel myself getting emotional, and, and at one point I wondered, how do I stop, that? like, how do I get off this train? Um, and so when I heard that, you know, President Obama retweeted, I thought, wow, that was, dang, that was was pretty cool. (laughs) And then it was like, you know, women needed to hear that. People needed to hear that. Men needed to hear that. Everybody, um, I guess, was waiting for somebody to kind of cross through not just sports, but really in everything. And I had, um, you know, I was really interested in the the election uh, that had just happened when, you know, so many women were running, so many women won. And we're seeing so many. And then I thought, well, let me look up and see how many we have. And I was shocked that we still only had like 23 to 25 percent. So, you know, it feels like we're making waves, but we still have so far to go. And uh, I think it's just been building up. You know, I feel like it's been uh, it's been a a fight for 30 years to get women to kind of be on equal footing. And I just want to keep I want to keep fighting, but I want people to join me. You know, I want to hear some echoes around the country.
0: Yeah. You know, you used to, I think, accept the stories about being the only women. I I read an interview where you said you used to sort of accept the questions about being the only woman at this event or in this group of coaches. And now and now you're kind of like this has gone on too long. This is this is too long for me to be getting the same questions about the same situation. Was there a pivot point or a moment that you remember where you thought this this is too much of this now? This hasn't changed and it's been too long without changing.
1: Yeah, I think we see that every day. I think women go to work every day thinking they're going to just do the job they were hired to do when they run into sexism or homophobia or xenophobia. or you know, like there's, there's always something that we're fighting some other battle. And I think it's you, you just you get to the point where you just can't take it anymore. And I think the, it was funny because we go to the Final Four. You know, here we are in Tampa Bay. I'm excited. My team's back in the Final Four. We turn on the TV in our room and it says, welcome, Matt McGraw. And I, I thought, you know, that's the kind of little straw that really breaks your back. And you just think, God, when, when is this going to change?
0: Was the room under his name? What, or they just well,
1: assumed? I don't the... know how it could be, right? I mean, <laughs> right? it was under both of our names and they just happened to choose him. And he said, I'm sure you're on the TV in the other room. Uh, <laughs> I was uh. like, no, no, I wasn't.
0: Well, I have to say, I liked it when I booked all the stuff for our mini moon after our wedding, and it was under my name. So the whole resort kept calling my husband Mr. Spain, and he was just like, "Well, whatever." And I was like, "Yeah, whatever," because that's how it's going to be. Like, I'm not yeah, changing my name, yeah. and if people call you Mr. Spain, you're going to have to accept it. And he was like, "It's fine, whatever." Um, <laughs> but I, for the first time, I was like, "Oh, this must be what it's like for men all the time. All like, the just time. all the time. People yeah. are just um, so you know. You mentioned there are so many issues that are." Um, corollary to sports and particularly for female athletes um, but aren't always directly addressed you have not been afraid in dealing with your athletes um, to allow them to express themselves notably back in 2014 your players wore I can't breathe shirts during warm-ups to protest uh, police brutality um, you openly talk to them about issues um, in society beyond the basketball court do you get pushback from any of the players because even when it's as simple as for instance you always give your your player's a book. Last year was we should all be feminists. Um, there are words or ideas that have become so politicized that they've lost their meaning and instead become a trigger to, to to tell people you're on a side or another side. Do you have athletes that come in that are great basketball players but maybe come from a different background or a different set of ideals? And when they get triggered by those things, um, there's pushback from them or their parents to you being more than a basketball coach.
1: You know, I haven't really seen that, and and they're all from different backgrounds. They're all from different places. I think we do share some common bonds, and we have a lot of discussion. That's the point of the book, is to have some discourse. This is a a college campus. So we're supposed to be educators, and we're trying to teach them. You have to listen to different opinions, and you're so right. People are so busy choosing sides right now and protecting their side that they're not willing to listen. And we we had a we were honored by Mayor Pete down the, at the courthouse, and he gave us the key to the city for you know for last year's success and. We, you know, there's a there's a lot going on in the country right now, and and I spoke to some of those things, and I think that the what I'm trying to teach my girls is you you have to have that voice, and you can't be afraid, and it takes a lot of courage to speak out. People are going to immediately condemn you, or or say you're wrong, or or want to just you know just disparage some of the things that you say. But I, I think that's that's really the main point. Uh, We, you know, we had to vote um, on a lot of things like the I can't breathe T-shirt. Our boss said, you know, if if it's unanimous, then we'll do it. And that was important to me, too. And it was unanimous. So I think that's important. And I asked them, what what causes do you want to fight for? You know, let's let's talk about this.
0: Yeah, let's talk about the boss's side of things. Um, Notre Dame, uh, maybe not the easiest place to push back against. Um, just accepted traditions or rules surrounding what constitutes sports expression and otherwise. Um, Have you had to fight many battles in terms of being able to be free with what your athletes want to express or what you want to talk to them about?
1: No, I I haven't at all. And both our president, Father Jenkins and Jack Swarbrook, our athletic director, have both we, we had a big meeting in fact, uh with all the coaches of all the sports. Um we talked about those things and um you know, we talked openly about it and their philosophy is that we're, again, we're educators and we're supposed to be part of the community and we have to be able to give our opinions and fight for what we believe in. And I, I think we all, a lot of us, of course, all the women here are definitely all on the same page in what we believe in and fight for. But um, that's why they've had a lot of different graduation speakers. You know, they've had a lot of the presidents come and speak and some people are opposed and they, you know, they they don't like their views and they think, how can a Catholic school have this person as a speaker? But um, it's because we want some open in discourse and we want to really get people to learn the other side.
0: So, um, you know, you you then raise these athletes to be great great role models, great teammates, smart, uh, good to their fans, and it feels like those are the things we always ask of our athletes. That's what we say we want, right? And usually our best female athletes are those in spades and not always the case for male athletes who don't necessarily have to cultivate as much of a personality education, everything on the outside of sports, because they know if they're good enough, it's going to be tons of money, tons of fame. They're not going to have to, to really do anything else. Is it frustrating to you that we say we want one thing, but as long as a male athlete is just great at what he does, we don't actually really care if they're a good role model or good to fans or smart or have anything else going for them. And we're clamoring for this is, this is what we want. And it's right in front of us in terms of female athletes and sports.
1: I think they should be held to the same standards, and I think that they're all role models. I, I think that you can't say, you know, I didn't sign up to be a role model because everything you do, somebody's looking at you and your name's in the paper. You have a platform, and you need to be cognizant of that, and you need to really think about that when all these young kids are looking up to you and, and what what are you saying. And uh, I think, we, you know, we talked about social media and some of the things they have to say, but, you know, women are expected to do so much more. You look at the WNBA. The things they are doing with community service, the things they are out there, they're having clinics, they're going to different events, uh, they're constantly out in the community. And we don't expect the NBA guys to be out there because, you know, they don't need to be. And so I think that's the frustrating part is to look at how we're seen, how we're judged and the difference. Um, you know, it's stark. And you look at Serena when she wants to yell at the umpire in tennis, um, she's hysterical. She's emotional. And when the Yankees manager wants to yell at an umpire, um, he's fighting for his team. So I, I think it's, it's pretty much up and down how society looks at us and what, what we're expected to be like. Yeah.
0: I want to do a speed round quickly because I have a bunch of questions I want to get to. So, uh, what's the secret you've learned about the Notre Dame campus from being there for 30 plus years?
1: Um, everything leads to the Golden Dome. You can find your way f- anywhere from there.
0: What's your favorite spot to work on campus?
1: Not the court, of course. <laughs> that's too easy. the golf course.
0: Oh, <laughs> The really? golf course. Not bad. Uh, is that also your favorite spot to relax, or you have somewhere else for that?
1: Yeah, I think it is. I, I don't know that it's totally relaxing to golf, but yes, that's definitely <laughs> it. It's
0: about as relaxed as you get, I'm guessing. Yeah. It's <laughs> still competing at something. Um your favorite rivalry with another team? Connecticut. Your favorite coach to play against?
1: Um you know, I, I have a lot of them. I think Tara Vandever is somebody that um that I really I really uh, respect a lot and because of the way they scout, and, you know, you always you always look at that.
0: Your least favorite coach to play against?
1: Oh, I, I couldn't possibly think of one.
0: <laughs> Unrelated question. Uh, your rivalry with Gino Oriama seems pretty real. If you guys, uh, if if you guys were to, to, to you know, I guess, I guess, is there a part of you that still respects what he does and how much success he's had, or are you guys so very different that uh, it's frustrating to see someone in the same job in the same industry with such a different approach?
1: Oh, I have great respect for Connecticut, their program, uh, for Gino, what he's done, what he's been able to accomplish. Just this year, you know, kind of being preseason number one after winning it last year and thinking, God, the expectations are really weighing us down here and to see how he's, he's done that. I mean, he's won so many championships. Um, I think that the the elite level that, that they've played at, uh, I think has raised the bar for everyone. And I think us, when we joined the Big East, that was a great thing for us to be able to play against them so many times.
0: Uh, how have you seen the kids you're coaching change over the years?
1: Well, this generation is a lot different. I think they're, I always say they're generation Y, W-H-Y, because (laughs) everything you tell them, they want to know why. I think it's a really good thing. You know, I I enjoy it because I don't mind being challenged. I don't mind when they have questions. Um, But I, I do think their parents have not taught them how to fail. And I think learning how to fail is so important for kids to get that mental toughness, to be able to get confident because you have to you have to fail and then you have to get up again and and get it right in order to be confident. And I think parents make the mistake of wanting to fix everything. And that's that leads to kids that don't have the coping skills. So when they have an injury, or they're not playing, or they're not playing well, they they really don't know what to do. And I think it's leading to a lot of transfers now because their parents are saying, you know, we don't care about the commitment. You're you're going to go somewhere else. So I I think the kids are kind of similar, but um, I think the parents are changing.
0: Yeah, and I think that's one of the things people who have done sports always talk about later in life how useful it was to fall and fail. And mm-hmm. get right back up and try again and how people in life maybe don't have those experiences very often outside of sports. And so to take that aspect out of it and not allow for that is such a loss, I think, for the for the people playing. Um, How have you evolved as a coach, maybe because of the changes in the athletes year after year?
1: Well, I've changed tremendously. My former players come back and tell me how soft I've gotten now because we don't, <laughs> I'm uh, I'm so much nicer. I'm so much more patient, and uh, I think they're just seeing it through a little different lens. But I I, I do think I am. I, I think I'm, I'm much more forgiving of of things when they happen. I I don't think everything's life and death uh, every single play. Um, I'm more interested in the relationship that I have with them off the court and um, trying to get to know them and you know, kind of be a part of their life, I I think has been a really, a really good thing. Um, And I think that asking their opinion, I never would say like, what do you guys think? You know, and now I'm like, here's how we're guarding the ball screen. Hey, what do you think? What do you think you like this way better or that? You like the two, three or the man to man? Um, So much more of a collaboration now because they're smart kids and they, they want input and they get input on so many other areas of their life that it's unusual for them not to have input. So I do yeah. – I ask a lot more questions, and I do get a lot more feedback. Uh, I used to be a little bit more of a dictator, I think, when I first started, and that's that's just the way coaches were. Um, but now I definitely feel like we have a lot of buy-in because they're giving a lot of opinions.
0: Oh, gosh, I'm sure there's plenty of former athletes that played for you that's oh. – well, I wish I was around now. I
1: had, totally uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, She never had. Totally my different. opinion.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, before I let you go, you have to do the one thing that everybody does and nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. That's right, the Spanish Inquisition. The ten questions everybody gets and nobody expects. Number one, what's your desert island album? You can only have one.
1: Well, it's got to be pink.
0: Oh, nice. Uh, number two, what habit or quality do you think has contributed most to your success?
1: Competitiveness.
0: Number three, what would you consider your biggest failure?
1: Um, well, I fail so often, it's hard to pick one. Um, I would say um, 2010 uh, NCAA tournament. mm.
0: Anything in particular, or just you thought you had it and, and, and you can point to certain things that if they'd gone differently, you would have?
1: Just a play call at the end that I, I regretted immediately.
0: Yeah. Uh, number four, have you ever been in a fist fight? No. <laughs> really? No. <laughs> all right. All right. Number five, if you could switch lives with anyone for a day, who would it be?
1: Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Oh,
0: yeah. She always has the, the right word for everything. What a wonderful quality that must be.
1: That was a great movie uh, too.
0: Oh yeah, uh, on the basis of sex or yeah. the or the Notorious. I haven't seen Notorious or R uh, B G yet. Yeah,
1: but. they were both good.
0: Yeah. Uh, number six. What's the most embarrassed you've ever been?
1: Oh gosh. Hmm. I, I I can't think of anything right now. I'm. Let's come Are back you, to that is one. it
0: tough to embarrass you?
1: <laughs> no, it's a constant. I mean, it's <laughs> all the time. I went I went to a um a meeting with like the board of trustees and um my zipper was open.
0: Oh, that's not good. That's uh, that's up there. Uh number 7, what's the thing about yourself you'd most like to improve?
1: Patience. I don't have any.
0: Ditto. Uh number 8, if you could play commission of life for a day, what one rule would you enforce that all of society would have to adhere to?
1: <laughs> Everyone needs to move with a sense of urgency.
0: Yes. Yes, I agree. And I hate when people say the opposite. Everyone needs to be more patient, not be in a rush all the time. I'm like, there's things to be done. You only live once. Get out of my way. Uh, number nine, what's the most scared you've ever been?
1: Oh, wow. Um Mm -hmm. Probably when my son was little and I lost him in uh, Toys R Us.
0: Oh, no. (laughs) How long did that last? Did you have to go over the intercom? Not as long
1: as I thought it did.
0: Yeah. Felt like forever, I bet. Yeah. Um, Number 10, what three words would you most hope people would use to describe you?
1: Integrity. um, Excellence. And... Good person. That's a hyphen.
0: It's four, but I'll give it to you. I'll give it to you. <laughs> uh, and finally, who would you recommend that I have on this podcast? Who would be good
1: to talk to? Have you had Serena on?
0: No, although she's tough, man. She is. Yeah. She's a tough get.
1: I've we'll only good. interviewed I, her once. I think... Um... There's a there's a there's a lot of good women out there right now that um, Devro Peters is starting her own trying to start her own kind of I saw podcast that. thing with the uh, WNBA stuff. And I think she's a very she interesting a person to talk to.
0: Yeah. Well, this was so great. I love talking to you um, and getting more insight into all your success. So thanks for doing it. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, Sarah, it so much fun. Thank you so much. That's what she said.
0: It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. And this week, it's dumb Instagram captions. And I think you know it when you see it. It's like someone looks good, they want to show you how good they look, but they feel awkward just posting it, so they put some lame ass cheesy thing. Like there's a couple kissing on a boat and they caption it going overboard. Or some chick's feeling herself and takes a picture with some pizza and writes little slice of heaven. I think we should all just be honest. My hair looks banging. So I'm posting this photo or I love my makeup today or felt cute might delete later is allowed. Hey, everybody, come see how good I look. Always, always a winner. You can even just get real basic with a shout out to my girl, Carissa Thompson. She just writes content. Perfect. If you're feeling yourself, feel free, post it, own it. We don't need your puns. We don't need your BS captions. In fact, I Googled Instagram captions to remind myself of some of the worst ones. And instead, I came up with Pages of posts suggesting captions for people to use on their Instagram. Like pages and pages. One day if I snap, it's probably going to be about this because it's post after post with uh, real gems like today is a good day for cake. or The world is a book. Want to read it together? No angel, but she got a halo. And my favorite that I saw, and by favorite, I mean the absolute worst. You're the avocado to my toast. And I love avocados. What does that even mean? And these are just random suggestions. There are pages full of them. All the books in the world. And we're reading posts about how to caption our Insta photos instead. And I just realized how old I sound. I sound very old. Time to wrap this up. But you guys know what I mean. There's so many other things we could be doing with our lives than reading posts of suggested captions to put with your thirst traps. Just tell everyone you felt looked good. That's it. Just say, I I felt like I looked good. I wanted to post this photo. I don't need to put a dumb pun. Okay? All right. I feel good about what we accomplished today. Quit it with the garbage captions. Just be honest about your fond self, people. There. I fixed it. Hey, if you like this show, you might like my nightly radio show, Spain & Company. If you can't catch it live, 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern on ESPN Radio, Sirius XM Channel 80, and the ESPN app, you can always listen to select segments posted to the Twitter feed, so be sure to follow at Spain & Company. This week's listener dilemma comes from at Fiona. Who says I'm a Browns fan. I married a Steelers fan. Options besides not speaking to each other for four months. Uh, this is a tough one. But let me tell you a quick story about my Wisconsin born husband and how he tricked me. So we started dating in July. And he told me he had lived in Chicago for so long that he was no longer really tied to his Wisconsin teams. He had grown up liking both the Cubs and the Brewers. They were in different leagues. He had a grandparent that was into the Cubs, yada, yada, yada. And when he moved to Chicago, he was there for so long and working in Chicago sports. So he became a fan of, you know, the Bears and stuff. No more allegiance to the Packers. We wouldn't have to fight about it. Great. Perfect. A couple months go by. Our very first Bears game comes around. And Jay Cutler has just been acquired by the team. And they're playing the Packers. So the season's about to begin. We settle in to watch. And if I remember correctly, he threw five picks in his very first game as a Bear. And instead of being distraught, as I was, my husband was laughing and had to admit that sometimes he sort of roots for the Packers to do well. So that was a real bait and switch because by that point, it was too late. It was too late to abandon ship. So I had to learn how it is to be with someone who occasionally sides with the enemy. And I think it helps if you can find common ground, you know, his many years in Chicago and mostly flipping sides that made things much easier. But for the most part, I accepted that occasionally he was still rooting for Wisconsin to do well at things. And I was civil. We had fun with it. We could talk trash with it. Usually only one of your teams is having a great year. Only one of your teams is going to go to the super bowl. So if that's happening for your partner, just try to be a mature, loving person and be happy for them that their team is in it. It's probably going to hurt. It's probably going to suck. But you should want your spouse to be happy, right? So in that moment, you need to be a bigger person. Of course, always, always rub it in if their team sucks. Just really make them pay for it. That's the best advice I can give you. But uh, not speaking to each other for more, four months. Try that, too. It might work. Maybe absence make the heart go fonder, right? You just won't have to talk to your spouse for four months. And when you reconnect after the football season... You'll have missed each other so much. I actually wouldn't recommend that. Don't do it. If you've got a dilemma for the commission to fix, tweet it to me, at Sarah Spain, or go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe, rate, and review. To that's what she said with Sarah Spain. Leave your dilemma in your review, and I'll try to get to it. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. Well, that's what she said.